Psalms 105. We spent a few moments last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, in the closing words of the Apostle Paul, in those little snippets that he has at the end of the letter. We looked at three particulars of what he said in, in that of uh, rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing, and in every circumstance, giving thanks. And, and, and we see that really as a, as a theme of the Christian life as we live in this present world, that the Christian life is meant to be lived in the joy of the Lord. And we looked at it because we were thinking about thanksgiving. And uh, I wanted to continue on in that same vein as we, as we begin to make a shift from thanksgiving to the anticipation of the celebration of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, through the month of December, we will be looking at different aspects of the uh, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ or aspects of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have several, we have different men that's going to be uh, preaching throughout the month. Um, next week, Jeremiah Shively is going to be preaching on peace, the reconciliation between God and man. I think that's the direction he's going with, with that. Um, then we'll look at faith and we'll look at love. And then on December 24th, um, Isaac will be speaking on joy. And then on December 31st, which is post-Advent, theoretically, whatever that means, uh, Matt Tramp will be speaking on hope. So we look forward to what the Lord has for us in those weeks to come. Uh, this morning, I wanted, to, I wanted to spend a few minutes in the first five verses of this chapter that deals with the posture of worship. Uh, as we look to, the, to the, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the birth of Jesus Christ, we want to examine our own hearts as we approach this season. It's Historically, the, the celebration of Christ's birth was not celebrated by the church. This is um, in recent developments that we began to celebrate it. I think recent is relative. With the last several hundred years, we began to celebrate Christmas. But the disciples didn't celebrate his birth. They celebrated his resurrection. And, um, and yet, I think it is good for us to, to consider uh, and to be reminded of the reason why Christ has, has come. Let's, let's read together the first five verses of this chapter. And then I want to flesh it out just a little bit of, of the context in which it was written, the context of which we're going to approach it, and then look at each of these verses as each of these verses gives us directives or, if you will, exhortations or even commands. It is in a, in, a, in a command mode that is given. Beginning in verse number one of Psalm 105, David writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known the deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has uttered. I'm going to look at it in, in five different commands or five different directives that help us to, to cultivate in our own hearts a posture of worship. The first would be thanksgiving. 
the second will be praising, the third, rejoicing, the fourth, communing, the fifth, remembering. A, a part of the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is to be reminded uh, that his birth, that his life, his death, and his resurrection is the, the culmination of the purposes of God and the promises that he has made toward his people. It is the, uh, I believe, to be the apex of human history, the, the birth, life in Christ, and death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All things prior, and, and we've talked about this in the past, all things prior to the cross looked forward to the cross and everything since we look back to the cross. That's why we observe the Lord's table. We want to remember this pinnacle of human history. This changed or this established our the ability uh, of new life that we have with the Father, with our Creator. So when we consider the purpose of God, we, we see that God's purpose is to have a people for his own sake. This is a, a, a people from among the rebel creatures who sinned against him. So, so God desired, and God desires from before the foundation of the world that he would have a people for his own sake. And this people for his own sake, those he would call his own, would be brought out of the rebel creatures who rebelled against him. This was first fleshed out in the Garden of Eden, right? We, we see these promises, these promises that were made in the Old Testament that is, finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. We're looking at the birth of Christ. All of these promises, all of the, the covenants that God has made for us has found its answer and its fulfillment in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we find first mention of these promises in the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis 3.15. And it's not necessarily a covenant that God was making. It was perhaps more a threat or a warning uh, to Satan himself, to the serpent himself, when he said to him that you, there will come a time, uh, there will come a time that you will bruise the head of the seed of the woman, but that seed of the woman will crush, will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that seed of the woman will crush your head. It, it's symbolic language, obviously, but that seed of a woman is actually Jesus Christ. He is the one whose head, whose heel was bruised, but he crushed the serpent's head. The, 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 the symbolism there tells us that Christ is victorious over Satan, death, and the grave. He has gotten, he has received, he has won the victory over Satan, death, and the grave in order that he might have a people for himself. Um, God's purpose was seen when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you remember the description in, in Genesis chapter 6, that every man, woman, and child, every, every thought of, that was in their hearts was evil continuous, continuously. And God 
decided he would destroy all of Earth's creation by sending a flood. But in the midst of his judgment, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then he sent the flood, saving Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives so that they would be preserved for a new generation. Then he gives us the rainbow, the original rainbow. That is a sign of the promise and the covenant that he's made with Noah and with mankind that he would never ever flood, destroy the earth with a flood. But along with that promise, we find this promise, this covenant, that alluded to a future judgment that would come, this judgment by fire. But the picture we have there is that judgment will come, it will be a final judgment, but only those who find grace in the eyes of the Lord will be delivered. That would be those that God has called to be his own. That's a covenant that was given to Noah. We see another covenant that was given to this pagan, this idolater named Abram. And God called him out of his country, away from his people, into a land where he would show him. This Abrahamic covenant was promised to him And at the core of that promise was a seed, a seed from Abraham's loins would come a seed that would be a blessing to the nations of the world. Now, in case you don't know, uh, the, the seed of Abraham is the nation of Israel, but the blessings are upon the nations of the world, the Gentiles. That would be you and me. We are reaping the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the seed of Abraham, and through that seed, we have life eternal. So this is what the promise of God that he had given to Abraham. That promise was fulfilled and was, was fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, in the life of of Abraham with clarity God's plan was revealed to Abraham when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness there, there's the whole program there that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel that man would be saved by faith upon faith he would be saved by faith Abraham believed God faith therefore it was counted to him for righteousness when did he when was it imputed to him for righteousness was it after he did good works no it was simply when he believed god so there's a pattern that we find for our salvation that was fulfilled and carried out in the lord jesus christ god's purpose for the ages that he would have a people for himself is seeing is seen in the mosaic covenant when he gave moses the law. And the law simply gave us a picture or a reflection of God's own holiness. And it separated Israel from every other nation around them. They had a God 
that was unique from the gods of the nations around them. This law gave civil structure to Israel, and it also provided the means through the sacrifices by which his people might be right before him. The blood that was poured out, that was described for them in the law, was a covering for the sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices of bulls and of bullocks and of lambs, they were offered up as a shadow of things better to come. That shadow of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But ultimately, the moral law of Moses condemns and it kills. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're condemned because we can't keep the law. It condemns us. It kills us. It revealed to Israel and it revealed to the world that righteousness cannot be attained on human merit. The Pharisees, the pious gas bags of Jesus' day, uh, were, were, as far as the law was concerned, they were blameless. That's what Paul's testimony says in Philippians chapter 3, that he kept the law, the letter of the law, to its nth degree, and yet it did not bring him righteousness. This keeping of the law... Uh, this, th th this keeping of the law could not bring a righteousness that was attained on human merit. Because of innate sin, mankind is incapable of perfectly keeping the law. Therefore, he is condemned. If God were to have a people for his own sake, the righteous requirements of the law would need to be fulfilled to the nth degree not just in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is the righteous requirement of the law as our substitute. God's purpose is seen in the covenant that he made with David, the king of Israel, in that of his kingdom there would be no end. Jesus came to establish his kingdom, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly of a people of, for his own sake. His kingdom is over all creation, and it is forever. He is the king who reigns in righteousness over his people. He is the king, the prince of peace, and we may pray for the peace of Israel, which I trust that you are. We might pray for the peace in our world, which I trust that we will. We know that ultimate and final peace will come only when the Prince of Peace returns and his kingdom is established forever and ever over all creation. God's purpose is seen in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where God promises to put his law within us, writing, in our, writing it on our hearts. He promises to be our God and that we would be his people. He promises to give us his spirit who will teach us all things concerning him. He forgives our iniquity. He remembers them no more so we can come boldly to the throne of grace based upon the righteousness of Christ. He accomplishes all of this through 
Jesus Christ. There is nothing more appropriate at Christmas than to remember that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and that the promises He has made are fulfilled in the birth of His Son, the life of His Son, the death of His Son, and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. So when we pause to consider God's faithfulness to keep his covenant, we are moved towards worship. Let me say that again with a little bit of commentary. We consider God's faithfulness to keep his covenant in spite of our failure to keep our end of the bargain if that makes any sense. If you read the remaining verses of, of Psalm 105, you will find that David recalls and rehearses the Abrahamic covenant and God's faithfulness throughout the ages, throughout their history, to remain faithful to that covenant to establish a people out of that nation of Israel. By the way, this was written you can find the exact same text in the first five verses in First uh, Chronicles chapter 16. David is writing there because it is at that time that Saul, the king Saul that was trying to kill him, finally died. The kingdom of Israel was united and David was now anointed as king over Israel. He had gained victory and possession over the city of Jerusalem. He had prepared a place for the Ark of the Covenant, had awaited on God's timing for them to bring the covenant in, and at the right time, he sent the priest to go and retrieve the covenant, which is the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, where God said, I will, I will reside and to bring that covenant into the city. And bringing, in, bringing that covenant into the city, there was a great celebration. It was at that point that David wrote this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Let all the world know. So it is written with an exuberance there. We'll find that in the, we'll find it as we look in these verses. It was, a great, it was a great psalm of joy. And he gave it to his Musicians, he gave it to the choir director and he said, I want you guys to sing this. I want the nation to sing these verses. So it was in the process of worshiping the God who was faithful to his covenant. If you read the next chapter of Psalm 106, which is a brother passage of Psalm 105, you will find there that God remains faithful to his covenant even though his people were continuing, continuously hard-headed, stiff-necked, grumbling, griping, murmuring people. So he's, he's describing here a God who is faithful to his covenant, who is, not, who is not hindered by our unfaithfulness. That's not an excuse for unfaithful living, but it is a recon, recognition and acknowledgement of God's faithfulness and that nothing will thwart the purposes of God. Now, when we pause to consider God's faithfulness to keep his covenant, we are moved toward worship. 
This is what we are called to do. This is the case with King David when he wrote, wrote this psalm. He gives to us a posture of worship in these verses. And I want to look at these, these first five verses together in, um, in Psalm 105. And let's just consider, consider what it means to cultivate this posture of worship. And I would encourage you to think to, to think by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, how this can be applied in a practical way in your life. Once again, if you notice the first word in verse number one, oh, we're not going to look at it word by word, but I do want to look at the word oh here. I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached that way. He preached word by word. If you want to hear good preaching, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches word by word in the text. But here, he says, oh. And although the interesting thing about, about the written word is that it does not allow us to hear voice inflections. It doesn't allow us to see body language. But knowing the circumstances in which it is written or it is spoken, I think helps us to sense the mood of the writer uh, it, it helps us to, to he, perhaps hear the inflection of his voice, even if it's only in our heads. It, here, the events that established David as king over all Israel, the victory to gain possession of the city of Jerusalem, all culminating in the Ark of the Covenant being carried into its new home in the city, brought great rejoicing, not only to David, but to the entire nation. In fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 25, the description is that, is that David and his elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were the Levites who were carrying the Ark and the singers of, of, of Shenaniah, Shina, uh, the leader of the music of the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, to the sound of trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. So with this knowledge, when we read the word, oh, we can hear David's exuberance when he says, oh, Give thanks to the Lord. That, that's the mood in which it was written. And the fact that David's exhortations here are written and are preserved for all generations informs us that although these directives were issued at a high point in Israel's history, they are to be carried out as a course of life for you and for me. These five directives are to be used to cultivate this worship within our own hearts in both the prosperous times as well as the difficult times. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, David says. As we discussed last week, giving of thanks is an expression of trust and reliance in the Lord's care. It is an expression of faith. Lord, 
thank you for what you are doing. Now, let's not overlook the obvious here. Thanks is to be given to the Lord. And that may not, may, may not in, in previous generations, may not have been an issue, but in current, the current culture, uh, when people would want to live in autonomy from anyone over them, Thanksgiving can be quite confusing. To whom are you giving thanks? To yourself? To your good luck? To Mother Nature? Or what have you? Here is very clear we give thanks to the Lord. The observation may seem to be conspicuous, but without direction to the one from whom comes every good gift and every perfect gift, all other expressions of Thanksgiving is, is superficial. The Christian knows that all gratitude ultimately lays at the feet of our Creator. Even in the New Testament, when we read the New Testament writers giving thanks on behalf of someone, when Paul says he gives thanks for someone, he says, I give thanks to the Lord for your faithfulness. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. And I think there's something that is solidifying in our minds the, 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 and, and it is honoring to the Lord when we call upon his name. And, and I think we've all done this at some time or another, or at least we've heard someone else do it. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I, I, I think sometimes we say it without thought, but the instruction David gives calls us, uh, tells us to call upon the name of the one to whom we offer our thanks. Make known the deeds or his deeds among the peoples. Thanksgiving is not only upward, but thanksgiving is also, also inward in that it shapes our hearts and our minds when we offer to the Lord thanksgiving. It helps to shape our world view when we offer up thanksgiving to our God. But for the saint, thanksgiving is also outward. It is outward. A life lived in gratitude with genuine expressions of thanksgiving to the Lord is a testimony to all who not only hears, but sees God's grace in action. A disgruntled, ungrateful Christian is an oxymoron. That should never be the case. I, I wonder if, if you might pause for a moment. I'm going to move on. But I wonder if you'd pause for a moment to consider how you can, in a practical way, cultivate the discipline of giving thanks to the Lord in every circumstance. What would that look like for you? The second exhortation is praising. Singing our praises. He says in verse 9, sing, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous Works. Now, the exhortation is to sing, but it is your praise that is to fill your song. 
you are praising him. And, and we wouldn't expect anything less than a command to sing when that command is given by a musician. David was a musician. He wrote the bulk of the Psalms that we have in our Bible, much of which were songs sung by the people of Israel. In fact, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the narrator tells us that David commanded the chiefs and the Levites to appoint their brothers and the, as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. He speaks of their dress once again, but he speaks of them entering into the city with, so, with, with loud music, with harps, with all of their voices, and they danced in the streets, and David, uh, David led them, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating. Here's the king over all of Israel, dancing in the streets. I, I don't know if that's prescriptive, I think is more descriptive, so don't expect, not that I'm your king, but don't expect me to be leading the way in dancing. I don't have the rhythm to do it. But the idea is that there is a singing of our praises to the Lord. And music, I think, is, is God's gift given to man, whereby he might, out of the joy of his heart, offer praises to his creator. If you don't have a musical bone in your body, I feel sorry for you. Music feeds my soul. Here in this verse, singing praises to the Lord, rehearses and bears witness to his wondrous works. Now, for the unregenerate, for those who are without Christ, the music of the redeemed, when, the re, when, a, when a lost man hears the music of the redeemed, the music of redeemed should faithfully point him to the wondrous works of God. That's the purpose of our music as a testimony in our world. But for the redeemed, rehearsing the wondrous works of God encourages our hearts and it assures the saint of God's faithfulness. The songs that we've sung today reminds us of what God has done and what he continues to do. In both his letters that he wrote, the one to the, the church in Colossae and the other church to Ephesus, Paul directs the church to not get drunk with wine, wherein is, uh, where, for that is debauchery, but actually be filled with the Spirit. He makes the contrast there. And as a result of being filled with the Spirit, and in Colossians chapter 3, as a result of, being, uh, of letting the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, you are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, singing hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Contrary to what some might think, congregational singing is instruction, it is encouragement, it is praise and worship by rehearsing the truths about God as revealed by the Word of God. The primary of function in the church is not entertainment. 
it should be entertaining in that it moves our hearts to look to Christ, but it is not for entertainment. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. In what practical way will you intentionally incorporate praise in the rhythm of life? There's a third exhortation, that of rejoicing. Verse number 10, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. That, that word glory is an interesting terminology or phraseology there. The idea of glorying in something, for, for me at least, and I, I assume it's for you as well, it's a foreign in, in its wording, but its practice or its, its meaning is not foreign to any of us. The idea is to make your boast in, uh, in his holy name. Uh, we, we looked in James chapter 5, or chapter, the end of chapter 4 this, this morning, and, and where we would boast in our arrogance. The idea here is that we would make our boast in the holy name of God. Uh, the psalmist speaks of it in several passages, several passages throughout. One of them is in, in Psalm 34. My soul makes its boasts, makes its boast in the Lord. Um, Jeremiah 9 says, Thus says the Lord, let not, let not the wise make wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts Boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Of course, this is in contrast to all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Or in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. To put it in contemporary terms, some, some place their trust in the Republican Party, some place their trust in conservative values. But we will place our trust in the Lord. Just to finish that thought real quick, the Republican Party is not our savior. Jesus is our Savior, and we put our hope and our trust in him. Political message done. But Isaiah says, Woe to those who go down to, down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. Do not look, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So we are exhorted to make our boast in his holy name. The reference to someone's name speaks of the totality of their character. The reference to God's holy name is to reference his essence that transcends all of creation. So we make our boast in the very essence of who God is as he exists outside of creation. He is greater than all else. For Israel, the reference to make their boast in God's holy name meant to look to Yahweh or to Jehovah, the name that speaks to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. 
He says, let the hearers of those who seek the Lord rejoice. That is the outcome of boasting in the transcendent covenant-keeping God is a heart filled with rejoicing. Now, in the context of this verse, rejoicing coincides with Glory, glory, glorying in the holy name of God. It carries the idea of a victory cry of the heart. And it, and it may or it may not manifest itself in, in cheer or in celebration externally, but it begins in the heart. And I think the contemporary illustration is, is pretty clear for us and, and in, that, in that many of, of you make your boast in your favorite NFL team. And so you, you, you boast in the greatness of how they played their game as though you were on the field with them. And so we won type of a, a cheer. You make your boast in that. And, and, uh, and, and we, we buy, we, 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 we anticipate a, a, a game, a, a, a Super Bowl appearance. Uh, we anticipate their, a Super Bowl victory. Uh, we, we buy into their merchandising, and so we buy their, their jerseys, their, their caps, their cups, their wall hangings, their backpacks, whatever you want, because you are boasting every time you carry that, whatever team you are boasting in, Green Bay Packers, Minnesota Vikings, whatever it might be, um, you're you get the idea of boasting in that. Interestingly, because of the unknown, we often boast and rejoice for our team even when they're having a losing season. In fact, some of you make your boast and rejoice in a team that consistently have losing seasons. But you make your boast in them. Why? Because you enjoy that. That's, you, you find your joy there. Making your boast and rejoicing in the Lord is in an entirely different sphere altogether. With God, you never have to wonder if he will come through. He is already victorious. You never have to question his ability or his willingness to accomplish what he has purposed for you. So we rejoice in the holy name of the Lord. The fourth word would be that of communion. Seek the Lord, verse number 11. Seek the Lord in, in his strength. Seek, and pers- seek his presence continually. Three times the psalmist compels us to seek. We are to seek the Lord. We are to seek the Lord and his strength, and we are to seek his presence continually. And, and here, here's a secret in case you did not know. God is not hiding from us. So the psalmist is not telling us that God is playing hide and seek. He is, he is, because God has made himself known. For the New Testament sake, he has made himself known through his son. He speaks to us through the ministry of his spirit in his word. So the command to seek the Lord is to avail yourself to him, to avail yourself to his strength and to avail yourself to his presence continually. Back when we were in college, our, our choral director and head of our music department at our school was missing an index finger, but he played the piano really, really, really well. And we traveled all over the nation 
during our, our Kelly and I traveled throughout the nation singing in different churches and different camps. Um, and he would accompany us and he, it was so remarkable to play, apparently, without this finger, it's pretty hard to do. I'm not a pianist, so I don't know, but I've been told it's pretty difficult to do. And the reason he was able to do that was because when he was a little boy, he lost that finger. And his piano teacher just kind of slammed the piano and said, you'll never be able to play. So he was stubborn enough to say, oh yeah? And so he learned how to play, and he played very well. I remember one Sunday evening where we got done playing, and one of the, lady, one, one of the ladies of the church, they gathered around the piano and the musicians, and they were talking, and one of the ladies made the comment, man, I would give anything to be able to play the piano as well as you do. And he was polite about it, but he said, no, you, no, you wouldn't. She said, oh, yeah, I would. Mm, do you play the piano now? Yeah, but not very well. Well, then, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't give anything to play the piano as well as I do. And she said, what do you mean? She said, if, he said, if you would give anything to play the piano as well as I would, then you would do what it takes to play the piano as well as I do. You would practice. You would pour yourself into it. And he said, you play the piano as well as you want to play it. That's kind of where I am with the piano. I don't, I don't play at all. Because I am, I'm, I would love to play it, but not enough to actually practice. But here's the whole thing. You are as, you walk as closely and as nearly to the Lord as you really want to walk. God's not hiding from you. And so David is, is compelling us to seek the Lord. Avail yourself to what he has provided in his own revelation. He has already made himself, to, especially for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He is near you. We talked about last week. He is near. This transcendent God has chosen to make himself near to us that we might know him. And for those of us who live on this side of the cross, he has given us his Holy Spirit who has made his abode within us. He dwells within us. Those of us who live, I've been listening to different biographies of, of, um, of uh, of church reformers such as John Wycliffe and John Huss, John Huss, um, who, whose blood was poured out so that we might have the Bible in our language. And, and we have it freely. Or if you want to buy a nicer one, I mean, really, there's one in the chair in front of you, if you need one, you actually honestly need one and can't afford it, take it. You can have it freely. It's freely given to us. So we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have the Word of God in our hands, freely in our language. It's written in many different translations so that we can understand it. Be careful which one you, which one you choose. But we have it there, and we, uh, we, are ex we, are, we are exhorted to seek the Lord and His strength and to seek His presence continually. So I want to ask you this. What, what steps will you take this year or in the year to come to cultivate a posture of worship where you will continuously seek the presence of the Lord? Can I give you just a couple of helps here? These, these, are, these are obvious helps, but these are the basics of what we would know that we would need to, to draw near to the Lord. First of all, and these are the things that God has given to us. First of all, Bible and prayer. 
reading I would I would encourage you to to if you if you haven't already to grab a Bible find a reading plan and again we have technology today uh, there is a an app called U version Y O U version there's a lot of different apps out there but I like the Y O U version U version just look it up you can download an app there's all type of reading plans you can have you can have a chronological reading plan you can have a read through the Bible ten times in a year reading plan if you want there's even some some there's even a program where you can you can calculate how many times you want to read the Bible, and it'll figure out what you should be reading each and every day. If you want to read it four times in a year, every quarter, go ahead. But the whole point is you have the ability to find a reading plan and just begin reading it. If, if you like just reading a book, I, I enjoy just reading one book several times through the, a month. Read, first, read the book of First John every day for 30 days. You know what happens at the end of 30 days? You're pretty familiar with the book of First John. And then you can tell me how to cover chapters 4, verses 1 through 6. So, so spend time in God's Word. Um, here's, a, here's a clue. If you've never done it before, start small. Start at a short increment of time. Set aside 10 minutes every day, a specific place, a specific time. And start with 10 minutes. I will spend 10 minutes reading the Bible and praying. If you start with two hours, that first day is going to go really well. The next day is not. But start small, and you'll find eventually you'll begin to read and enjoy, have more time for it. So find a reading schedule. Pray that the Lord will do a work in your heart so that you don't, and, and I know I use the term a lot, but pray that God would use his word to impact your heart so that you don't just become a pious gas bag. Because it's not just about knowledge. It's about intimacy. It's about growing, to, growing in your walk and your relationship and drawing near to him. That's the whole point of it. The second thing that, that would be helpful is the church. I would encourage you to place the local church high on your priority list. Serve in the body of Christ. Fellowship. Sing. Even if you don't carry a tune, I would encourage you to sing. And I'm not joking. Sing. Observe the Lord's table. Pray corporately. Read the scriptures together. Hear the preaching of the word of God. Hear the teaching of the word of God. Interact spiritually with others. Provoke to love and to good works. Cultivate relationships outside of the corporate gathering. And the third thing that you can do is begin to evangelize. Learn what the gospel is. And then learn how to be able to share it. And pray that God would give you opportunities and look for opportunities for you to speak about Jesus. You may not lay out a whole plan of salvation, but you can plant the seeds of the gospel, of, gospel, of the gospel of grace, that people might hear what the truth is. So, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known the deeds, his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearers of those, hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Then finally, remember. Verse 12. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and his judgments that he has uttered. And there, I think there's a great value in the discipline or the practice of remembering. And that's why we do the Lord's Supper. That's why the Lord has given to us. Because the bent of our hearts is to be caught up in the present day, forgetting what has transpired in the past to bring us to where we are today.
The truth is we need to remember because we are the product of our history. The Apostle Paul put it this way, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He saw the providential hand of God in his life to where he was there, and he trusted that he would press on to what God had in store in the future. David exhorts us to remember the Lord's wondrous works, his miracles, and his judgments, each of these unique and distinct, and they are linked one to another. His wondrous works alludes to his purposes, working according to his divine will. All that God does, he does with purpose. So when we remember God's wondrous works, we are encouraged by his faithfulness to the promises that he has made to us. When we remember God's miracles, we rehearse his authority and his power over creation. And here we witness not only his purpose, but his power to carry it out. When we remember his judgments that God has uttered, we are reminded of his authority to rule according to his divine creation. His ways are perfect. His judgments direct our paths into righteousness. Because of this, they are not grievous or burdensome as we follow him by faith. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. To you, dear Lord, we offer our all in life or in death. May you be glorified. May your name be known in all the earth. May you be exalted as we offer to you our worship. In Jesus' name, soli deo gloria. Amen. <clears throat>